Well, last Sunday evening, 68,000 fans gathered in Glendale, Arizona to watch the Kansas City Chiefs squeak out a win against the Philadelphia Eagles. 113 million people watched Super Bowl 57 on television around the world, making it the third most watched TV event in history. Actually, it wasn't exactly 113 million people because it was minus two because we sat over here at the Chili Bowl and played Euchre and two people had their backs to the screen, so they can't count. But anyway, I want you to think about that. 113 million viewers. At the same time, the Chiefs and the Eagles had combined 106 active players on their rosters. 92 players were allowed to dress for the game. Only 22 men could be on the field at any given moment. So you've got 113 million people watching. You have 22 at a time actually playing. And I wonder sometimes if that's how things go in many churches. I mean, the numbers aren't that extreme, of course. It's not 22 active, 113 million passive. But man, let's be honest. From a global perspective, far more people go to church as spectators than actually suit up and get in the game. It is easier to be an armchair quarterback than it is to have 11 massive human beings trying to plaster you to the the field. It's easier to yell at the guy who missed the pass, who missed the tackle, who missed the field goal than it is to get in the game and help move the ball down the field. We're going to look at a church today that was filled with spectators, not a passionate participant, not an active player in the whole bunch. We are wrapping up a series that we've been in for the past seven weeks. It's about the seven letters that are recorded in the book of Revelation. They are written to seven churches in seven ancient cities in Asia Minor, what is now Turkey today. The letters are actually from Jesus himself, and they are recorded by the Apostle John. Some of these seven churches were healthy. Some of them were unhealthy. Some of them were a mixture of both. But I think we've seen throughout the series that we can learn lessons from all of them. And the series has been hashtag up to us. Our health as a church is is up to us. Our impact in the world is up to us because Jesus has given that responsibility to us. The hashtag, like a category in social media, reminds us that we're all on the same team. We are all in this together. And so far in this series, we've seen the challenge to wise up. Remember, the the problem in Ephesus was legalism. They had lost their love. They needed to straighten up. Toughen up was Smyrna's problem and they were dealing with persecution, and they needed to, to brace themselves. Grow up was Pergamum's uh, need because their problem was liberalism. Shape up, the problem in Thyatira was, was idolatry. Wake up, Sardis had a problem with complacency. And last week, we looked at the church in Philadelphia, and it was to look up. They, they needed to hang in there and be faithful in spite of the hard times they were going through. Well, we are concluding today with the church in Laodicea, and the message to them, I believe, is to suit up. In other words, they needed to come down out of the stands, and they needed to get in the game. A reporter that I read about was doing a, a sort of a man-on-the-street interview, and he walked up to a woman, he stuck a microphone in her face, and he said, ma'am, what are the two greatest problems problems facing America today and she said I don't know and I don't care and he said exactly 
Ignorance and apathy. Those are the two greatest problems that we face today. And friends, that was the church in Laodicea. Now, two weeks ago, we talked about the church in Sardis. They were a complacent church. They had a reputation for being alive, but they were pretty well dead. They would start projects and not finish them. They failed to focus on Jesus. They didn't have anybody who was advancing the gospel. And still, Jesus said, well, there were a few people there who were trying to turn things around. There was a spark of life there that needed to be fanned into flame. Well, in Laodicea, that spark has gone out. By all accounts, there was no one there that was holding on to the faith, spreading the gospel. And the really tragic thing is that nobody even seemed to notice. Ignorance and apathy had taken over their church, and, and they felt pretty good about themselves. They didn't even realize the situation they were in. We're going to see today that the people in Laodicea needed to stop being spectators, and they needed to start being followers. They needed to suit up, get in the game. And I'm just telling you, if that's you today, if you feel convicted today, my prayer is that you will be challenged. Jesus begins this letter like he has begun each of the letters by identifying himself as the author. Revelation 3.14, he says, To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. Now the word Amen or Amen We say it at the end of a prayer, it means so be it, or may it be so. It actually comes from a a Hebrew root word that suggests fixed, firm, reliable. Jesus says that he's the amen, he is the faithful and the true witness. If he says it's so, it is so. If, If he says he will, then he will. He is the ultimate reality. He is the definitive promise maker, and he's the definitive promise keeper. Now, he also says that he is the ruler of God's creation. I don't know if you remember back in Colossians chapter 1, the apostle Paul talks about the same thing. Paul says about Jesus that Christ is the image of the invisible God. He is before all things, and by him all things were created. That God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in Jesus. That in him, in everything, he has supremacy. In Jesus, all things hold together. Now, our small group right now is studying through the book of Colossians. And we learned a couple of weeks ago about something called laminin. Laminin is actually a protein molecule in the human body. And for that matter, it's in all forms of life here on earth. It's known as a base molecule. It is a cell adhesion molecule. Think cell superglue, okay? It it kind of connects it all together. It's like the rebar in concrete. Laminin is what holds your body and mind together. I want to show you what laminin looks like in its molecular structure. Laminin appears in the shape of a cross, 
Now look, Laminin does not prove the existence of God. I'm not making that claim at all. I believe God, though, in his infinite wisdom, his infinite purpose, I think he created the protein molecule Laminin in a way that it would one day when we discovered it remind us that he holds everything together, that Jesus is the one who holds everything together in our lives and in creation. He is the ruler of all creation. But what what does Jesus say to the church in Laodicea? He's identified himself, but then in verse 15 he says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Now, truthfully, these are some of the most familiar verses in the book of Revelation. You're not cold, you're not hot, you're lukewarm. And I don't know about you, but that makes me think of coffee. I'm not a big coffee drinker, but I live with coffee drinkers. And, uh, you know, most people either like coffee really hot or they like coffee over ice. But when that cup of hot coffee kind of slides to room temperature, it's fairly disgusting. I texted each of my three kids yesterday individually to ask them a question. I said, if mom is not holding her coffee cup in her hand, where is it most likely to be? All of them said the exact same thing I knew they would, the microwave. She is notorious. You can hardly open the microwave and not see a cup of coffee sitting in there. It's because lukewarm coffee is disgusting, and so she charges up her coffee. She heats it up a thousand times a day and then forgets about it, of course. But the city of Laodicea, they understood the sad reality of warm water, lukewarm water. They did not have a natural water supply right there nearby, so water had to actually be piped in from these Roman aqueducts. And sometimes the water came from these mineral hot springs. Sometimes the water came from these cold springs. But either way, once it had traveled a number of miles in these pipes, the hot water had cooled and the the cold water had become tepid. And it was no longer as desirable. Now, I read that Jesus also could have been talking about wine here. Because in ancient times, guests sometimes served wine chilled. Sometimes they served it warm. But to serve wine at room temperature was considered an insult. Listen again to what Jesus said. I know your deeds. You're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. I want you to let that sink in for a minute. What makes Jesus sick is not the sad state of the world or the political climate of the United States or the persecution of his followers. It's not even poverty, crime, or injustice. Those things break his heart. But they don't make him sick to his stomach. What makes Jesus want to puke the most is people who claim to be believers but are so apathetic about their faith, it has no impact whatsoever on their lives. These people in Laodicea, they weren't evil. They were just indifferent. And friends, I believe this passage in Revelation, perhaps more than any other place in the Bible, requires that we take an honest look at ourselves. Have I allowed my feelings about God and about the church and about Jesus to slide? Has my fire that was, man, it was hot going in my gut for a while, 
Has that cooled to room temperature? Has my faith been pushed to the back burner, a burner that's not even turned on? Man, it's hard sometimes to see the reality in our own lives because it's such a gradual shift. It's such a slow fade. It can be so subtle that we don't realize how we ended up where sometimes we do. We have to be honest with ourselves. I heard about a girl who was breaking up with her boyfriend, and she said to him, I will always cherish the initial misconception I had about you. <laughs> Ouch. What was she saying? Man, I thought I knew you, but I didn't. I, I, I will always cherish who you weren't. I thought I knew what you were like, but I was wrong. We can be so quick to look at others, to judge them, maybe judge their character, maybe judge their motives. Sometimes we're right. Frankly, sometimes we're wrong. Sometimes it takes a while to figure it out. But do you know who I think can be the hardest person to get to know deep down? I believe often it's the person in the mirror. We know who we wish we were. We know what we want to be like. And sometimes, some of us, we grade ourselves on a curve and we sort of round up in the evaluation. Well, I know I'm not great, but I'm a whole lot better than she is. At least I don't do all the things that, that he does. And sometimes, though, I know people who do just the opposite. That they loathe the person in the mirror. They deny God's promise that he, we are created in his image. They, they hate everything about themselves. But it really is pretty hard, I think, to have an honest self-evaluation where you really understand yourself. But friends, this is so essential. We need to figure out if there's a problem, and if there is, we need to do something about it. Some of you know that my wife Gail and I spent most of last Monday in the emergency room at University Hospital up in Louisville. A year and a half ago, Gail had a stroke. And she came through it fine, really. I mean, there's some limited effects still. But on Monday, her symptoms were back. I mean, I was scared to death. And so I drove her up to Louisville probably about as fast as an ambulance would have gone. And it didn't cost me a thousand bucks. So anyway, I took her up there and they did a number of tests on her. Her primary care doctor told us this week she probably was in the initial stages of a stroke. But because she's on blood thinners, because he had repaired a hole in her heart a year and a half ago, that it did not go that far. We're going to be seeing a neurologist this week. But listen, those tests they did last Monday in the ER were essential because we had to know. We had to know how serious this was. We had to make sure she was not in danger of having some kind of life-threatening consequences. And I believe the same goes for this evaluation. Jesus actually says here in Revelation 3, listen, he said, I would rather you be cold than lukewarm. I would rather you be cold than lukewarm. I have wrestled with that all week. He would rather we be cold than lukewarm. We know Jesus doesn't want us to be cold. He doesn't want us to be cold in our faith, cold toward God. We know ultimately that he wants all of us to be on fire for God. So why would cold be better than lukewarm? And I've got a theory. I think maybe I've discovered some things in my study this week. The person who is cold, follow me here. The person who is cold is obviously not in a relationship with God. I mean, there's no question whether or not they're saved. They're not. The person who is far from God is actually in a better position than the person who is lukewarm because the person far from God is more likely to come to faith. I mean, think about it. They can be shown the truth, 
and they have a better chance of coming to the conclusion that they are broken. They'll realize maybe at some point that they're far from God, but the person who is lukewarm just doesn't care. They're apathetic. They have just enough religion to act as a vaccine that keeps them from getting the real thing. They're often deceived into thinking they're just fine. And that's why it's the most dangerous place to be. It is even more dangerous to be lukewarm than to be ice cold. Friends, I believe lukewarm may be the easiest place to go to hell from. Now, another thing we learn from the statement of Jesus, why it's better to be cold than lukewarm I think that must mean, I can't figure out any other way to interpret this. It means a lukewarm person is not really saved. Now understand, this is not a person who's having some ups and downs in their faith. This is not a person who's wrestling with some doubts. This is not a person who's maybe feeling a little flat in their worship. This is a person who has deceived themselves into thinking everything's fine. Oh yeah, I invited Jesus into my heart years ago oh yeah I was baptized when I was a kid on Easter Sunday and they just kind of go through the motions maybe even go to church on Sundays but there's no relationship with Jesus there's no impact on their lives everything is completely meaningless when it comes to faith so man let me just ask you do you have the courage to look in the mirror and honestly evaluate where you are in your relationship with Christ do you have the integrity the guts to be honest with yourself and with him and the question is for me too If you're ice cold and you can honestly say, I've never surrendered to Christ, man, we want to help you take steps toward him. But I just want to be honest, man, if you're lukewarm, you, you could be totally lost and not even realize it. That is the most dangerous place in the world to be. It's why I think this is one of the most important questions you'll ever ask. Because being lukewarm is, is an insidious and very subtle problem. In fact, Jesus goes a step further in describing lukewarm people. Look at verse 17 of chapter 3. You say, I'm rich. I've acquired wealth. I do not need a thing. But do you not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked? See, the person who is hot, and I'm not talking Scarlett Johansson, Ryan Reynolds hot, okay? The person who is hot for God, okay? That's a person who knows that they're rich even if they don't have two pennies to their name because it's about heavenly riches it's about eternal rewards the person who's ice cold may very well reach a point of despair and hopelessness and come to God but it's the lukewarm person who is so self-deceived they actually think they're rich when they're really he says as poor as a person could be morally bankrupt spiritually empty in danger of damnation and that's why this is so important. It's why Jesus tells us next to invest in things of eternal significance. Verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Now there are three kind of interesting things about the city of Laodicea. They were known for their wealth they had a gold exchange there. They had a, a, a rich banking industry. In fact, when the city was destroyed by an earthquake in 60 AD, they refused money from Rome to help them rebuild. They wanted to prove that they could take care of themselves. 
Laodicea was also known for their luxurious black wool that they produced. It was a symbol of wealth, not just for their own citizens, but it was shipped back to Rome as well. And Laodicea had a strong medical school. They produced there an eye ointment called Phrygian powder, and it was known to be soothing and restorative for the eyes. And knowing these industries in Laodicea, Jesus used them as a springboard to talk about heavenly things. He said, don't settle for gold in the bank. Build your wealth portfolio by growing in faith. What the apostle Peter said, faith which is of greater worth than gold. Jesus says that don't prove your value by wearing fine black garments of the wealthy. Strive for the pure white garments of the righteous. And he said, don't settle for spiritual blindness, but apply the eye salve of the Holy Spirit's power into your life. Invest in eternal things. In fact, Jesus goes on to say, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline So be earnest and repent. See, as as frustrated and even sickened as Jesus was by the church in Laodicea, he reminded them, and he reminds us at the same time, to repent. He says, I want you to pursue a dynamic relationship with me. You know, I think it's fascinating. Sometimes we lift verses out and we quote certain verses. They become favorites and we don't know really what's around them. One of the most sobering verses in Revelation is where Jesus says to the church in Laodicea, you're not cold, you're not hot, you're lukewarm, makes me sick. In the very same letter to the very same church is one of what I think is the most beautiful verses in Revelation. Revelation 3.20, Jesus says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. I looked up that word anyone in the Greek. Do you know what it means? It means anyone. And that means you and me. It means anybody. You open the door, he'll come in. You can sit down together and have a meal together. I don't know if you were here last Sunday or not, but we were talking about the church in Philadelphia. And there, Jesus talks about a door again. And he says that sometimes he opens the door And sometimes he closes the door based on people's response to him. And that's the imagery. Well, he switches the imagery up here to make this point to Laodicea. He says he's knocking, and guess who gets to open the door? It's us. We decide if we're going to open the door or not. It's an image that has been painted over and over again. Here are two famous examples of those paintings. Bring up that that next slide. Yeah, maybe you've seen those. There's lots of other ones I found online as well. And the backgrounds are often different. The clothes are different. The lighting is different. In some of the paintings, Jesus' hairstyle is a little different. But there are two things consistent in all of these paintings. One is that he is the one knocking. He's the one initiating the contact. He's the one pursuing the relationship. And the other thing is that there's no handle on the outside of the door. Only the person on the inside can open the door. And this is such a beautiful picture of grace. To this church that was such a mess spiritually, this church had lost all sense of focus and perseverance and faithfulness. Jesus says he is faithfully standing at the door. He is continuing to knock. And all they need to do is open the door and let him in. And there can be a relationship again. But it's up to us, right? The decision is ours to open the door. 
For those who do comes the promise, verse 21, to him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I became, I'm sorry, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the churches in Smyrna and Philadelphia, Jesus had promised a crown. And then here he takes the image of royalty a step further and says, you will sit with me on my throne. Now, I tried to picture that for a minute. We don't know exactly what this is going to be like. It would have to be a pretty big throne to fit all of the millions of believers throughout the ages on the throne. And even if he only meant those people in Laodicea who end up repenting, they can sit on the throne with him. Well, that's going to be kind of awkward, too, because a throne usually only had room for one. Or maybe there were two thrones side by side, but there weren't a whole lot of thrones. How do you squeeze all these people onto a throne? This is not some kind of clown car where 16 guys come pouring out of a Volkswagen. Okay, that's not what we're talking about here. Jesus isn't going to squeeze us all together on his lap. Jesus is going to share his power He's going to share his authority. He's going to share his kingdom. For those who make the right choice, for those who refuse to be lukewarm, who refuse to be entrapped by the values of this world, they will be part of Jesus' royal line. You know, in the Old Testament, Moses stood before the people of God, and he issued a challenge to them that they had a choice to make. I'm just going to read some isolated verses from Deuteronomy 30. Moses is talking to the people. He says, listen. Today I'm giving you a choice between life and death, between prosperity and disaster. For I command you today to love the Lord your God and to keep his commands, his decrees, his regulations by walking in his ways. And if you do this, you will live and you will multiply in the land the Lord your God will bless you with. But if your heart turns away and you refuse to listen, then I warn you that you will certainly be destroyed. He says, today I've given you a choice between life and death, between blessing and cursing. Oh, that you would choose life, he says, so that you and your descendants might live. He goes on to say, make the right choice. It is the key to your life. Make the right choice. In last week's Super Bowl, the truth is, I really didn't care too much who won the game. I like both quarterbacks of those teams. Neither team is my favorite team. I picked the Chiefs last week. I wore red. I did a little trash talking with the people at the Chili Bowl who uh, were rooting for Philadelphia. But it was all just for fun. I really didn't care that much. But there have been some years where I cared a lot who won. Years ago, pulling for my Indianapolis Colts, man, I really cared about that game. There have been years I was really pulling against Tom Brady. I'm telling you, I understand when you really, really want the outcome of the game to be a certain way. Maybe want it too much. It made me think about my son Daniel. When my son Daniel was a little boy, I'd be watching a football game. I'd be watching a basketball game. He would come and sit down with me. Daniel, when he was little, always pulled for the team that was winning. He was a terrible fan but he always went to bed happy. I'm telling you, you know. I mean, he just he just pulled forever was ahead, and he was always good. Friends, listen, pick a team. Don't be lukewarm. Pick a team. Get on board and make your life count. I heard somebody say one time, there are three things that are most important in the book of Revelation. Number one, God's team wins. Number two, pick a team. And number three, don't be stupid. God's team wins. Pick a team. Don't be stupid. And this is not pick a team to cheer for from the sidelines. This is pick a team to be on. 
Pick a team to play for. Pick a team to win with. In fact, I would go so far as to say, get on the team or get out of the way. I mean, seriously. If you're only saying you're on God's side, but you're not. If you're going through the motions, but it means nothing. You're not advancing the the cause of Christ. You might very well be lukewarm. And so I want to shake you up a little bit and, and help you understand how dangerous a place that is. So so here's the bottom line, and if you push back and you say, Mark, well, you're not really being fair, if it makes you uncomfortable, you might be right, maybe I'm not being fair, maybe I'm being inappropriate, but before you pass judgment, before you send me a mean, uh, critical email, just make sure you're not uncomfortable because I'm hitting too close to home, okay? Here it is, get on the team or get out of the way. Jesus doesn't want you to get out of the way. Jesus wants you to get on the team. So we have to decide we're going to quit playing around. We're going to quit pretending to be followers. We're going to quit going through the motions that it needs to mean something. We need to step up. We need to to get involved. We need to realize maybe through kind of a a shocking statement, the dire straits we're in, maybe that'll help you in the long run to be ready to suit up and get in the game. And if you like the imagery better of Jesus knocking, then open the door, sit down to a meal with him. Take it seriously. You know, I, I don't know how much you've been hearing about the revival that's going on at Asbury College. Eleven days ago, they had their regular chapel service on a Wednesday, and when it was over, nobody wanted to leave. And so everybody just stayed. And so the worship team did a few more songs, and then people started praying for each other and with each other. And they started sharing scripture and confessing sins to one another, and it just kept going. And it just kept going, and it kept going. And for over a week, 24 hours a day around the clock, this revival kept going. Different people would get up to lead. Different people would get up to sing or to speak or to share or to pray. And and, and the last few nights, they've been stopping the meeting at 1 a.m. and then picking up early the next morning. But it has become kind of a national and even international phenomenon. Thousands of people have traveled to Wilmore, Kentucky in the past 11 days to worship. The day before yesterday, Mike and Jenna Clark, their four kids, Mike's dad, Paul, and I, we drove over on Friday to see what it was like. Forget the fact that it was the coldest afternoon (laughs) since Christmas weekend, and we thought we were going to walk inside the door and be inside worshiping. Instead, we stood in line for four hours outside so that we could get in the door and worship. We had people around us that were from Dothan, Alabama. Milwaukee, Wisconsin. We got interviewed by a journalist from the New York Times. She said she had met somebody who flew in from South America. Another person told about meeting a person from Singapore. Now, look, I don't know how long this is going to last. And I know the faculty is saying, look, we got to get these kids at least back in class. I mean, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what the impact is going to be. But this is the young generation many of whom are walking away from church and they are deciding that this has got to be real. And they want it to be. Here's just a one-minute glimpse at what that room was like. You're not going to feel a lot from it compared to what we did, but just take a look at this.
No offense to anybody, but these are kids. And they're reminding all of us that we're not messing around. This is real. And it's got to be real with us. I think that was what was so powerful to me was the passion of the people there. You know, every time you turn around on the news, people are gathering for something. A lot of people are mad, and so they get together. Or maybe they're excited about a sports team, or maybe they're excited about a concert, or maybe there's some kind of race being run, or maybe it's a political rally. But a bunch of people have come to Asbury because they just want to worship together. Because they just want to be together in the name of Jesus. And look, that doesn't mean that God is more present there than he is right here. But there's just something dynamic when everybody comes together in the name of Christ and the Holy Spirit is there. And people are there because of Jesus in their lives. And and people notice. The world notices. And so I'm just going to say again, with all due respect, honestly, get on the team or get out of the way. Because what we're doing is the most important thing in the world. And look, if you get out of the way, we're going to save you a seat because we want you back. Let's pray. God, I believe that you want to raise up a generation of people who will be all about you, who realize that the time is short, maybe, who realize that we can't afford to be cold, but we also can't afford to be lukewarm, that we want to be red hot for you. And that's not about emotion. It's about conviction. It's about what we know. It's about what we believe. It's about who we trust God, help it to be real. And the truth is we all have ups and downs, and the truth is sometimes we all get lazy and we get a little bit lethargic with our faith. God, would you just stir in us your Holy Spirit's fire? Would you just remind us how important this is? And thanks for being so patient with us when we wander. God, we do devote our lives to you again today trusting that uh, you'll help us every step of the way. It's in Jesus' holy name that we pray. Amen.